Welcome to Risk Never Sleeps, where we meet and get to know the people delivering patient care and protecting patient safety. I'm your host, Ed Gaudet. Welcome to the Risk Never Sleeps podcast, in which we discuss the people that are protecting patient care. I'm Ed Gaudet, the host of our program, and this morning I'm pleased to be joined by Chris Plummer, Senior Cybersecurity Architect at Dartmouth Health in Manchester, New Hampshire. A little rusty for Monday morning, Chris, my apologies. That's okay. That's okay. We ease into it. And by Friday, it's Friday's another Monday, actually. I think that's right. So we've learned that there's no more Friday. It's just five Mondays in a row and then we start over. So we have learned about that. Yeah. And I love your, I love the, um, those movie posters in the background. Yeah. Those are a cool story there. Right in the beginning of the pandemic that year, we were supposed to go to Comic-Con in Boston and we had all of the big names lined up. We were going to, I was going to meet Chris Hemsworth. I was going to meet Chris Evans. I was going to meet him. Actually, I actually was going to be in a photo with him together. So we bought these posters to have him sign and that whole thing fell apart as everything fell apart. I was uh, launching my company that year. And I guess you get a red badge of courage as an entrepreneur during the pandemic or something like that, they tell me. But it's all yeah, about it. When you're still here too. <laughs> exactly. It says a lot. So. That's right. That's right. I didn't expect to start that way, but I am captivated by those posters. I'm a big movie buff as well. So maybe we'll have time to jump into that and talk about Thor. I see on your shirt. Awesome. Hope so. Yeah. Awesome. So tell our listeners about your background and about your health system. Wow. My background, if we used the whole time, I think we would just talk about (laughs) wild, my wild ride, but abbreviated version. (laughs) Yeah. I just, I came into healthcare like on my sixth year as a senior cybersecurity person in in a hospital and the bulk of my InfoSec experience is um, a little over 10 years mm-hmm. working um, InfoSec for U.S. Navy as a civilian contractor. Most of that time was with IBM, which was afforded me some huge resources to help assist the really important mission of the U.S. Navy submarine maintenance program and really learned a lot about certification and accreditation and was like the person on this contract. We, we were building this submarine maintenance software really is what it was. And, but I was like the technology person. So I was the system administrator. I was doing CNA. And hmm. the thing about CNA is it's arduous and you have to, so you have to learn how to run everything, patch everything, demonstrate that your systems are secure and can process certain types of information. So it was just. You're the one, if it goes down, they come to you. Yeah. But I think an easy, an easier time though, like compared to today where like the cloud was not a thing back. So mm-hmm. grateful for that. I'm like, our work was very hard because we forced everyone to have a complete physically separate network to do the really important stuff. It was very hard to climb over the bridge and get into the crown jewels. And today we don't work like that today. We wish we did, but yeah, I just, I've always had roles where I've been like the one person show. And I think those are increasingly less and less popular, but this is born out of the dot-com revolution, like the late nineties, I came right out of school and was like the technologist for a company who wanted to be the, the Spanish Amazon.com. And that was really interesting. It was a <laughs> you learn thing. a lot in those experiences though, don't you? Yeah, you do. I learned a lot back then that even then I knew what I didn't know. And I knew that if I didn't know something like, like firewall was a good example. Like you had to, you need managed services, you need to outsource this competency. And so that was a good lesson going forward, you know, not to try to take on the world and pretend mm-hmm. you you can't, especially when today, you can't pretend to know mm. something about cybersecurity and stay afloat for very long. You're, right. you're going to be torched. So, How did you get into healthcare? I left the Navy after 
but 10 or 11 years, that sounds, it sounds better when I say that. It sounds better when I say I left the Navy instead of the contract turned over for the third or fourth time and they were like, okay, we're done with Chris. Always better to do it on your terms. <laughs> yeah, but I truthfully, I'd burned out of that experience mm. probably three full times where burned out, like where you don't even want to get out of bed. You're just like, I yeah. can't do this. I cannot wake up. Mm. And so finally, I don't know what year that was, 2012 or so I went to work for a completely different industry. I had a friend at the Timberland Corporation, mm-hmm. the Timberland Boot Company, mm-hmm. just massive, yeah, massive fashion brand. And mm-hmm. for the next two jobs, I just, I was like a security embedded person, like working in project management. And I worked there and I worked for Phillips Exeter Academy, huge private high school here in New Hampshire for and, yeah. a couple of years and got more cyber involved at Exeter was on the cybersecurity team there, but like a lot of places, cybersecurity is by committee. It wasn't, there wasn't a, a, a department there. And I really wanted that for Exeter and they weren't really ready for it. And so I started branching out and taking a look. I was just, this is probably, I don't know, 2016, 17, mm-hmm. hard to keep track, but there were a lot of like big cyber stories brewing. WannaCry was like making big mm-hmm. news. And sure. I, I found this ad for a, uh, cybersecurity senior analyst for a hospital right here in, in Manchester where I live. And okay, I think I, I think I can do that. And so I went in and I interviewed and I, rem- I remember that I was in this huge room and the CIO said, like, where do you get your threat intelligence? And I'm like, no hesitation. I said, I get it from Twitter. And I felt, you know what? That is exactly the truth. That is where I've learned everything for the past, at that point, the past like three years about cybersecurity. And I said, if I get this job, I'm like, I'm not going to, I'm going to be completely transparent. And I got it. And that was, I think working in hospitals is this cool intersection for me. I am I think anyway, I think I'm a, a pretty philanthropic sort of community oriented person. And I'm just, I look at my so, posters, right? I'm like, I think I'm an Avenger. I think I'm like a superhero. <laughs> and so. That's what I love most about healthcare, that shared mission that you have that you can't get in any other industry. The thing, Ed, though, is we, healthcare is powered by superheroes. Like how many are there to go around, right? We can't just, we can't hire those people. We can't, we have to cultivate them. We, If we're lucky, they walk through the door, but that's not mm. the norm. So this is, I think in another, if we're talking in another five or 10 years, maybe, I don't know if that's optimistic. Healthcare does not move that fast. But I want to say like the state of at least staffing for cyber teams in healthcare will be materially different, say 10 years. But I don't know. I think I mean, it. Five years ago, we weren't even really talking about cybersecurity teams in hospitals. Still, I was the only cyber FTE at my hospital back then. Now that hospital probably has, I don't know, two or maybe two or three. I'm not sure. The awareness is building in leadership. So I think even if leadership teams know they don't have what they need today, they know where they need to go. It's just a resource issue. Like today, I read this story today. I guess the state of New Hampshire has some funding to, this is for school districts, but they have some funding to do some cybersecurity awareness outreach for school districts here in New Hampshire, which is something, but we're down to, we're still back to the people problem, especially school districts are so like, they're just absolutely overtaxed. And I don't know, I don't want to say it's still preaching to the choir. I think people who are in place in most organizations know cyber is a thing and it just comes down to humans. How many, how do we get those people in place? So I want to be optimistic, but I think we do need to materially look at I think healthcare as a whole needs to reinvent itself when it comes to, mm. and maybe consider attracting people on some intangibles. It's, we have a few recs out there right now that we're hiring for. So I've gone out and taken a look at what's on the street, what other, what's attracting other people. And sure, pay, pay is a big thing, of course. Mm-hmm. We're, 
health, nonprofit healthcare is not going to drive this. With it. Yeah. But we know that though, but we, so we can't just sit here forever and, and lament that mm. we have to, we've got to look at what we can materially do about that. That's forging a new culture. That's empowering people to be who they want to be and, mm-hmm. and give them a path to go where they want to go and, and educate them and, and give them some personal flexibility. I don't know what else we can offer. That's short a of, really good point. Yeah. But so uh, I think, yeah. When you think about that, the, the people issue obviously is a big one, not going away. What are some of your other priorities over the next 12, 12 months, either tactical or strategic? Fishing is. Oh, I thought you, you know, I, no. Sorry. I don't think <laughs> I ever were go fish fishing. in real life. <laughs> I read this, it was a perception point. I think mm. a month or two ago, I had a report that fishing was up 40% this year. Really? And I said, wow, that's a, that's a number. Like, yeah. I'm a scientist. I want to know where that number comes that's from. That's huge. I have a way to prove that out, like, loosely on my side. I can go mm-hmm. through some metrics and I don't know about 40%. That's a really subjective number, but it's up. It's like, it's so, up. When, when yeah. I took a look at the, without getting into it, but I think I have way, I took a look at how we're doing at the beginning of August this year compared to last year. Yeah, we're, it's mm-hmm. up. And, and But the other half of that article, it was that it's AI, right? AI has in every story. AI is the new dot-com gold rush really this year. It's, it's in everything. It's like the new IoT. It's like web enable everything, AI enable everything. Here we are. And yeah. it, I, so what is it? What, what can AI be doing for phishing right now? Is it improving the quality of the phishing emails themselves? I don't know. I've personally analyzed thousands of phishing emails in my career and the ones that I'm seeing today are, they're not like materially different than they were last year. There are more of them. Okay. So is AI then contributing to the phishing kits themselves? Is it somehow making it easier to distribute phishing? Mm. I don't know. It's hard to say. Is it writing better? Is it writing code to create phishing? I've wrestled with chat GPT and writing code and had plenty of days Ed, where I should have just spent the day reading a book about code because all I've done that day was argue with chat GPT about why something is completely made up and not working right. And yeah, I don't know. I, so fishing's a big area. Any I don't other, know. Y- yeah. Any other areas you think? Leaning You'll through? find this pandering, but I, third party risk is like unbelievable. Yeah. That is the story. Yeah, I know. I agree. That's always been the story, but mm-hmm. It is so in focus this year. Why do you think that is? Hospitals are getting better, undeniably. We are, all of us, even those orgs that only have the one person show Mm -hmm. who's trying to stitch it all together, like hospitals are like materially getting better. They're getting, they're they're at least getting a better front door. They know where their windows are, closing them. But hospitals are, they're comprised of hundreds of third parties. And so they're just, it's just a matter of time until one of those weak links is, oh, is exploited well, yeah. and, and then and you get under the cover and then you learn about the state of affairs at these places they don't even have a cybersecurity program no and what um, we find is people always underestimate the number of third parties they actually have that are material to their business and it doesn't have to be a technical third party it could be a non-technical third party and if they get hit with some type of event and take and are taken down that could have an equally critical impact to the health system yeah, remote access is remote access, right? It doesn't exactly. matter what operational function they mm-hmm. serve. And that's been, that frustration is why mm-hmm. I, and you're a, you're a part of Health Sector Coordinating Council as I am, and that's that sort of fire. That's what got me into that space where I could vent constructively about mm-hmm. problems like healthcare suppliers that have like no security program or just, yeah. it's so highly variable where some orgs are, really mature and accountable when it comes to cybersecurity and and others are just still, they just, they don't understand the risks that they are 
projecting onto healthcare until they get bit. Even the advanced ones, look at Move It, look at the Move It event that just happened. Yeah, but really, with anything that's so pervasive, though, mm. that's just, mm. I don't know what we can do about that, really. It's analogous to Log4j, which is a little tiresome yeah. making that connection, yeah. but... We got to um, do better. Speaking of doing better, this year, in June 2023, you found a critical bug in Gmail. The so, Gmail thing. It was yeah, world uh, famous for a month. It world, was pretty world famous. Take our <laughs> listeners through that for those that may have not heard about it. Oh, man. That was it was just one night. One night in June. I got a phishing email. <laughs> Everyone gets phishing email, but this one had this new digital seal on it that I'd never seen before. And this is a thing that Google does and other mail, other big mail clients do this too, where right. if the message meets certain requirements, without dragging the audience through the whole technical details, if, if the message meets, has a certain provenance, like Google will say, this is legit. And I, I looked at this thing. I was on the way out the door to karate that night. I couldn't spend a ton of time with it, but I, I was like, this is off the wall. I've never seen anything like this. And so I got back to it. And the more I looked into it, I'm like, this is, this looks, I could report, I could click the report spam button in this, but this was, this looked severe enough. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was impersonating UPS. And, and it looked to me like anyone who knew how to take advantage of this could send any kind of payload, any kind of call to action to a user. And, and they could assert themselves as UPS. I know how victims, I just, I could see how there could, mm. someone could be extremely susceptible to this. And so I reported through Google's bug reporting program, which I've never done before. It's just not something I personally really have time for. So Google rejected the bug. They rejected the bug outright. They said, nah, this is working as designed. And I was like inflamed. I could not believe it. I was so mad. So I did what I do and I'm really mad. Just I go to Twitter and I rant. <laughs> And so I ran, to, it was probably like 9.30 at night or something. And I, I put it to bed and I woke up and it was just like 100,000 views and it wow. was going nuclear and crazy. Then I felt validated. I felt validated. I'm like, okay, I'm not crazy because it's like Chris versus Google. What do I know? Like I'm a kid who grew up in a trailer park and I'm telling Google that there's a problem with their stuff and it affects all of their users. And so Google ended up changing its mind, which was crazy. And I had the leverage of this tweet that I put out, which had all these people pigpiling onto it, defending me. And then two days later, as in, I, woke, I woke up and I was in Forbes. And then that night I was on TV. I was in our newspaper. I was on awesome New Hampshire Public Radio. I was in like every tech pub on the planet. I was in Apple News. I couldn't, like the one place I couldn't get into my local paper where I grew up here in New Hampshire, we tried to, my, I say we, because my wife was like, had a lot to do with media outreach. Like we tried so hard to get in this little paper. And they just wouldn't hear it, but we were everywhere else. That's it was nuts. Crazy. But that was the moral out of that is to just self-confidence. It's hard to have when you have a big company telling, and Google is full of those, some of those brightest minds on the planet. And you're like, maybe I'm misreading this. Cause I, I've never felt like my background is, and I do, I'm not from, it's a whole other thing, but I just, mm -hmm. I am, don't come from a very confident background. So just say that. Yeah, that was quite a ride. And, and made some awesome friends through that process and just learned really the fallibility of email in the end is really no better. We are, email is no better today than it was yeah. like a decade or even two decades ago. It's still just the softest spot. And that's why it's, that's why we talk Constantly about under attack. every year. Yeah, yeah. Well, we were proud to know you on uh, the HSCC. I know we all talked to him. <laughs> we're among royalty here. He uh, discovered <laughs> this incredible. Yeah, no, that was cool. So outside of healthcare or IT and cyber, what would you be doing? What are you most passionate about? Oh, I'm a karate student with my daughter. We're both, both got our black belts last year. We've been nice. doing this for about seven years. Thanks. That's great. Thanks. Working our second degree black belts right now. That is just, I know it's, she's 11. She spent half her life doing that. But for me, it's, that has been so transformative. Mm. I've 
it just made me just a different person. I've, yeah. I can handle this line of work in a way that I could not mm. before I started that. And it's more um, than physical, it's mental, spiritual. It's, there's so many dimensions to that art, which is, it's great. Yeah, I think that's why I really, I'm really uh, attached to it. And I think I used to be a bicycle racer before that. I, I used to, I used to race. you were a mechanic, yeah. actually. I loved, I love yeah. that. That was my like first job right? ever. Yeah, I, I was, saw that. Was building bikes. I built bikes when I was a kid, too. Oh, uh, really? Probably, probably different than you did. <laughs> we're sawing bars to make banana <laughs> bikes and these long you know, chopper bikes and with the banana seats. From oh, somewhere. that's great. Oh, yeah, in the 70s. Yeah. Yeah, no, I paid my dues at this little bike shop uh, in the Upper Valley of New Hampshire one summer and then and then went on to, I've raced a bike up Mount Washington like 13 no times. Uh. That's, I don't do that as much anymore. Karate has taken my life over, which I have allowed it to, I wanted to, it's, but so I have a lot of, I have a lot of self-discipline from that and I know what it's like to suffer. That's for sure. That's what helps get through this gym. When you spend 10 hours in a seat every day doing this job, you have to have gone to the you have to have gone to the pain cave before, and I have been there plenty of times. Pain means you're alive. Life is pain, and suffering is pain. And there's a Buddhist mm -hmm. adage that says, embrace your dread. You learn so much from that, and I try to live that as much as I can. But uh, I can't wait till we, we should, I can't wait to talk to you again down the road, and we'll have a far more positive spin on state of affairs. And <laughs> I know we are miring ourselves down right now. It's unfortunate, but let's, it, let's, is, it is. These are different times, right? These are different times. And speaking of that, what would you do if you could go back in time? What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Whoa. Back then, right around that time, was I was exiting this dot-com I was working for. And so a lot of companies were dying off, but there was still a lot of opportunity out there for, there were a lot of consulting shops that were trying to draw in talent. And so I had offers from a couple of these places, these big places like Compact Consulting and some local places like CMGI and Steel Point here in Boston. And I, knew. I was afraid of those. I was afraid to take those things. And I took really safe, like work. I worked in my apartment doing some contract work and play video games all day. And I just, I wish I had, and now some of those companies I just mentioned are like, they evaporated not long after, mm -hmm. but I wish I had taken the leap and, and mm. gone out on a limb and maybe spent some time working for some of those companies because I probably would have grown a lot more than I did just working in my apartment. Let's say I wish I had taken different risks. I, I wish I had walked into my karate studio back then too. I'd have a lot more under my belt. I'd have a different belt too. Literally. But <laughs> that's great. <laughs> I'd be remiss if I didn't ask this question because this is the Risk Never Sleeps podcast. What is the riskiest thing, Chris, you've ever done? Whoa. Riskiest thing I've ever done. Yeah, I know. I love this question because when it's I, so many interesting answers. When I first got to, when I was a freshman in college, the University of New Hampshire, I was like unleashed at UNH. I had grown up with, like my first computer ever was a Commodore plus four that 64? I got from this. Oh, plus four. It was a plus four. So I was like seven. And because uh, they ran out of 64. Because mm -hmm. we had this program in my school where if you, it's called cancer computers, where if you recycled 500 pounds of aluminum cans, it would give you a computer. They ran out of, Commerce <laughs> ran out of 64, so I got a plus four. And so I learned to code and I got familiar with computers. And of course, we're right in the age of Atari there, which, which I'm just like, can't believe I'm on this podcast. I can't believe I'm a podcast that Howard. <laughs> I, I interviewed Howard. It was fantastic. Did you listen to it? It was fantastic. This is, I He's coming back it. again, by the way. He's I'm really? on again. Yeah. He's so interesting. Such a fascinating guy. I'm halfway through his book and it's yeah, so I, good. It is. And, and by the time I got to UNA, I have a computer network now. This is like multiple computers that talk to each other. And I had a Unix account. But my, I had a 1200 baud modem and a terminal emulator. I did not have 
graphics, that's not a thing. All I could do is read. And I found Usenet and I found all 2600 and and Mm -hmm. I just read and read about things that good ways to get in trouble and with computers. (laughs) So I started downloading a lot of risky things. And I had no sense of where these things came from or who wrote them or what did they really do. And I got in big trouble. I got in Mm. big trouble. I almost got expelled from UH. Oh, wow. And I had a similar experience, by the way, but it was involving a sink and a wall (laughs) and the removal of said sink. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Stupid. (laughs) But yours is a cooler story. (laughs) I just, yeah, I just, I had no, and and I was like, Mm. I was issuing commands in, 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 Unix that I did not, I was using Sunmail and Wall and, yeah. and these other things and no sense of consequence. I had no awareness of what I was really doing or if I was now today, if I had a user doing that, they'd be out the door. Yeah. But yeah, I was back then. Yeah. I took my future in my own hands and, and mm-hmm. maybe in addition to the, maybe the safety of the people on the system. And, but I had some good people around me who really helped me get through that period of time. And I was able to stay in school and Somehow finished. Uh, that was really tough. They, the agreement was I'd stay in school, but I wasn't allowed to touch it. This is a very Kevin Mitnick story, by the way. <laughs> like I'm in school, but I'm not allowed to touch a computer. And but I was taking a lot of computer science classes. So this is that's how they thought this was going to be very burdensome for me. And so mm-hmm. I had to yeah. get like a shell account from some other company, and I had friends on the inside of UNH who were submitting my homework for me, and I had professors who were okay with that. And yeah, that was a risky time. That's the riskiest yeah. thing I've ever done. Excellent. We're at our, almost at our half hour here. Any last parting thoughts to the listeners before we wrap it up? This has been, thank you for your time. By the oh, way. you're it's welcome. I, I've had so much fun. Yeah. Um, I'll have you back on. We'll talk movies next. Oh, where would we start? We I start know. behind me. We probably need an hour or two. This so. whole Marvel catalog. <laughs> Cassie didn't know we'll need an hour next time. <laughs> yeah, I would just say we we cannot give up on our goal of trying to bring good technologists into hospitals. I think we we have so much, I think hospitals have so much to offer. I think we as hospitals have to better recognize what our intangibles are and, and market them. And I, I think there's a, I really think there's a story there. I think there are, I would call them civic-minded individuals who want to do this kind of work for the common good. This is, there's, hospitals are incredibly signal-rich environments. There's so much to learn and see and do and in a place like this. And that's what. And it's rewarding as hell. Come join us if you're out there. No question. You're looking for a challenge and you're looking to protect patient safety. And this is Ed Gaudet. We're wrapping up the Risk Never Sleeps podcast. And for you on the front lines protecting patient safety, remember to stay vigilant because risk never sleeps. Thanks for listening to Risk Never Sleeps. For the show notes, resources, and more information and how to transform the protection of patient safety, visit us at sensinet.com. That's C-E-N-S-I-N-E-T dot com. I'm your host, Ed Gaudet, and until next time, stay vigilant because risk never sleeps. Never sleeps.